combination of Shalane Flanagan as she comes to the line, breaks the tape. The joy evident as she has won her first world major marathon major. That was ESPN's John Anderson on the call of the 2017 New York City Marathon. Shalane Flanagan's finest moment. She has retired an all-time American distance running legend. I'm Jonathan Galt. This is the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. I'll be joined shortly by my co-hosts, Robert Johnson and Weldon Johnson, the co-founders of the wonderful website, Let's Run.com. We'll also be getting to Leonard Correa, who runs the fastest debut marathon ever by an American, 207, over in Amsterdam. We'll talk a little bit about the news that Mark Parker is stepping down as the CEO of Nike. We'll talk about some running shoes. We tend to do that from time to time. The Vaporflies, Sean Ingle has an article in The Guardian about them. Looks like they're going to get the green light. Bridget Cosguy, NCAA Cross Country. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about everything here in the middle of October. But we're going to start with Shalane. And I guess the question I'll put to you guys, we've sort of been debating this and throwing this around. Is Shalane the greatest female American distance runner of all time? Okay, John, I'll try to answer that question here. I've been writing these articles on Shalene on the website. I've written one. A second one's about to go up, but I've strangely found myself unwilling to take a stand. Yes or no, is she the GOAT? Which is very unlike me to not have an emphatic opinion. I'm going to have to finally say no. Um, Shalene had an amazing career, a wide variety of success in cross-country, track, and the roads, all three services. But she's clearly not the best track runner. I mean, Jenny Simpson has significantly more medals, including a gold medal. Clearly not the best cross-country runner. Lynn Jennings wins three in a, in a row. And clearly not the best marathoner. Dina Castor has won two marathon majors. So, you know, if you could say all together, it's an incredibly impressive career. I personally prefer to have Joan Benoit's career over Shailene's. But the more I thought about it, and this is an article that's just about to go up on the website, I'm not even sure if, if Shailene Flanagan's career is actually better than Dina Castor's. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think... I, I agree. I actually think Dina had a better career after running the numbers. And Robert, you had a nice breakdown, but I'll tease it for our listeners here. Essentially, Olympic medals. So Flanagan's got one, Castro's got one. Shalane's was a silver to Dina's bronze, but you know they both have an Olympic medal. World Marathon majors win. Shalane has one. Dina has two. Uh, she won Chicago and London. World XC medals, individual. Flanagan has one. Castro has two. NCAA XC titles, Flanagan has three, Castor has zero. Then you get down to sort of national titles. It's mostly even PRs. Castor has the slower PRs on the track, but she has the faster PRs on the marathon. But to me, the big thing is that Dina won two world marathon majors, which is quite an accomplishment. And one of them was London, 219.36, American record. That's way better than any marathon Shalane ever produced. So... I give Dina the slight edge because everything else is about even. I guess the two world cross medals is pretty impressive too. Uh, but that's where I stand. Dina uh, by maybe a nose. Hey, public at large doesn't give a shit about London, Chicago. Shalene Flanagan won the New York City Marathon. So I think public at large, Shalene Flanagan's the GOAT. Wow, well done. That's uh, spoken like a true New Yorker. Um, the public at large doesn't give a shit about running at all. Like most people can't even name Shalane Flanagan. So I don't understand why we're just saying, oh, idiots might believe this. So let's just go with the idiots. No, we're, we're running podcast with deep analysis of running. You just want to cater to the lowest common denominator. Well, then, I mean, come on, man. Well, Shalane's one of, I think, two runners my wife could name, but she has lived in New York for 10 years. 
So I, I'm just saying in the debate at all, people have won every recency bias. New York wins going to get more publicity. Personally, yeah, would you, John, would you rather win Boston? You're a Boston guy. Would you rather win Boston or Chicago and London? Uh, oh, well, the men's side, I mean, Chicago and London, winning, winning London means you're beating Kipchoge. Like, I think, I, I think I, for the men, I think I'd probably have both. For Shalane, there's no like, if it meant I could beat Kipchoge, I think I'd have Chicago and London. But I do get, yeah, Boston, that's if you if I could win one major, I mean, that's probably the one I'd choose. I don't know. What do you think, Robert? I'm very disturbed here. What Weldon's lived in, in the, New York for six months. I guess he did live there a few years ago as well. And now he's Mr. Uh, arrogant New Yorker saying she won New York. Therefore she's the goat. He says, no one gives a shit about London or Chicago. I mean, no one gives a shit if, in, about New York. If you live in London, London is clearly the number one marathon in the world. Now, now the weird thing is I would have to go back. We weren't covering this in the great depth that we were, you know, wh- what year was that? 2006 when she won London, like, was London the best marathon in the world back then or not? I, I don't really remember. But 219 back then was pretty much competitive with anything. You know, I, I think, I mean, I guess Shailene did beat Mary Catani, who was quite a good runner. Their careers, it, it's scary how similar they are. USA Outdoor titles, five. You know, it, it's crazy. Everything we're going through is pretty much the same, except sh- sh- Dina has an extra World XC medal, an extra marathon major. She never won NCAA cross though. She, yeah, yeah. To me, the NCAA cross is kind of important. I mean, Dina was four times top 12 at NCAA cross, but never won it. I like Shailene's, um, you know, maybe I prefer to have, which would I rather be right now? Shailene or Dina? I'd rather be Shailene. Shailene. Is it Shailene or Shailene? How am I? What am I? Shailene. I can't believe she has, she's just retired from the sport. <laughs> Robert still can't pronounce her name correctly. I was just thinking the same thing. So I would rather be Shalane just simply because, hey, she's doing a broadcasting career. I like doing broadcasting. Um, you know, she's more prominent right now, but it doesn't mean that she had the better career. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's pretty hard to distinguish between the two. Yeah, Robert, she's actually she's living your dream. She's coaching the Bowman Track Club and she's doing commentary at some of these races. So, well, let's talk about that though, because and, and I don't want to, you know totally disparage her career but would she have won a world marathon major without the backing of nike that's number one she won that race by what i think 59 seconds are the shoes worth a minute so do we put an asterisk next to a world marathon major i mean obviously there's uh, maybe i mean i guess when you're a woman having your period is part of just nature i mean that was also lucky the american hit it. she did win it it's amazing but do also i was thinking about this i think a shalene is so great and she's really raised the game. I mean, when she went to Bowerman, they were more a men's group. Now they're a women's group. The women are leading the way. She's going to coach. It's fantastic to see her involved in the sport. But yet again, we're going to have a Nike employee broadcasting on these national networks, which I think is a total conflict of interest. But the second thing I thought about is all the damage that Nike, yes, they pump up the sport. And without them, we can't imagine the sport. But think about all the damage they've done. You know, is Jerry Schumacher, who I respect a great deal, Shailene, who I respect a great deal, but they silently sit at this company while the the guy that Jerry used to be in business with is now being banned from the sport for four years. So, you know, to Shailene's credit, we've got to give her credit for this, though. I'm saying like, oh, she's going to go work for the empire and take the evil empire and take the money for all these years. Shailene, as a Nike sponsor. Shailene, Robert. It's there's no it's not it's S H A, not S H A Y. Shailene. Shailene, excuse me. Shailene. Do y'all remember this? When she said 
We don't know what to believe about the NOP. There's an ongoing investigation about it. So she's got some integrity. So I, I was a little bit worried, like, oh, she's joining them. Is she just going to sing the corporate Nike shill? But hopefully she keeps her voice as a coach moving forward. And in terms of the public at large, the GOAT discussion is done with the public at large. And as John said, maybe the public at large doesn't know shit. So maybe like the average runner at large, I think right now for sure they're going to side with Shalane. But, you know, 10 years from now, Shalane's going to be more prominent. She's doing TV and all this other stuff. And I guess maybe, you know, maybe that's not fair. Some people get mad that uh, Catherine Switzer gets all the credit for running Boston instead of Bobby Gibb. Bobby Gibb, you know what I mean? Like the the best don't always get the most credit, but uh, Shalane's, it's not like she's unmerited in this discussion of being the GOAT. No, ab- absolutely not. She certainly deserves to be in the discussion. I think one thing as well, Robert was sort of, it's, I, I wouldn't say you were discrediting, but you were saying, should we give an asterisk to her well marathon major win? I think the thing is, though, when you look at women like Shalane and also like Des Linden, Des's motto was keep showing up. I think that's kind of what if you're in America, a top American marathoner, that's what you need to do. And like Jordan Hussein needs to keep doing this, keep showing up. Because mostly if you're running against the top Kenyans, you're usually going to be an underdog. No one expected Shalane to win that race. Remember in 2017, London... Mary Katani had run 217.01. She just she looked like, you know, the next thing she was going to try to do was break Radcliffe's record. She was viewed as completely untouchable heading into that New York race. But like you said, she had a period. It was an off day for her. And that's what you got to do. Shalane, to her credit, took advantage by running a fantastic race. Her close in that race was phenomenal. She was just reeling off, you know, 510s or sub 510s. But I think some of these Americans, to win a major marathon, you need to have you need to be prepared to take that up moment when it comes because, you know, if she's running, if she's running Mary Katani, the one that showed up last year in New York and crushed everyone over the second half, she's not coming close. And we saw that because they raced each other. She got smoked. But if you run well to your best of your ability and the other person doesn't run well, that's when you can, you know, win. Yeah. I saw a couple people on Twitter didn't like that. Robert mentioned Katani had her period when Shalane won New York, but Shalane still had a fabulous final five miles and crushed her by a minute. Robert originally in the article was mentioning, you know, that she wore the vapor flies. And I'm like, well, we don't need everything in there. You know, the record books will always show she'll run 2017 New York. Now, yeah, runner insiders, we can debate, you know, how she won it. The field outside of Katani was not that strong. Um, I mean, I guess Kippelgott was in there too. But, like, that's the thing with these marathons. A lot of times there's only three or four top people, two or three top people, and one of them has an off day and your chances are much better, but you got to show up and you got to be very, very good. And she brought her a plus game that day. Well, right. And since it's sort of arbitrary about whether you win the world marathon major or not, kind of who's there, who has a good day or not. I mean, one, that would be one reason to actually go to the track PRs and and give Shailene the edge there. She's faster at 3000, 1500, 5,000 and 10,000. I guess contrasting that Dina has, does have the edge of the half marathon and marathon and her marathon national record still stands. So, you know, I mean, when we're talking about who's in the New York field, we don't even remember who's in the two. That's what I'm saying. I, I haven't done the research to go back to see who was in the 2006 London field or the Chicago field. Right. You know, when Dina won those. I mean, it's interesting though. Well, yeah, pointed out Edna Kiplica. I mean, that field had the reigning Boston champ and the reigning London champ. That's usually, I mean, you know, did they run to the same level they did that spring? No, but that's, you know, you can't blame New York. It's not like there was a field that was set up for Shalane to win or anything. One other thing in this whole discussion of the GOAT, just want to bring this up. A message will poster brought this to our attention. 
and they just posted on the handle of Lynn and Alice Jennings. Uh, and I think we got to give some respect. Shalane, a Massachusetts legend. Lynn Jennings, also a Massachusetts running legend. This is her resume. Third at the Olympics in 10,000 in 1992. Two medals at World Indoors. Three-time World Cross Country champion. I mean, th- sh- sh- that's just remarkable, those things. when Please tell me the next time American is going to even medal at World Cross. That's the thing, and that Shalane gets respect for as well. She medaled in 2011 against a very strong field. The top American finisher at World XC last year, 33rd place. And I just, I mean, you look at the recent domination of the Kenyans and the Ugandans and the Ethiopians of that event. I don't know when the next time we're going to see an American medal at World Cross. It, it might be a while. So Shalane, for Shalane to... Get met, get third, and for Lin Jennings to win three times is pretty outstanding. That's true, John. But it's really hard. One thing that makes it hard if we're going to compare, you know, Lin Jennings, and again, I, I mentioned Joan. But I mean, Weldon's talking about the public at large. Come on, you ask the public at large. Hey, do you want to be the Olympic marathon champion like Joan Benoit Samuelson, the first ever, or do you want to be Shalene Flanagan? They're all going to pick Joan Benoit. I think. I mean, I, I think that's just a much bigger deal: winning the Olympics versus winning New York particularly the first women's Olympic marathon. So, but you know, one thing about, you know, people don't want me to mention facts like, Oh yeah, she had a period and that's why she said she didn't do well. We also got to give credit though. Shalene's career head to head marathon record against Mary Catania, I think is two and two. She beat her in her debut. When Shalene debuted in New York, she only lost to Kepikot by 20 seconds. She did beat Mary Catania. You can look it up until it stops John, but I think it's two and two. But one thing about Lynn Jennings, John, one of the things you failed to mention fellow Princeton alum, like yours truly, <laughs> She won in 1990, 1991, and 1992. No African woman had ever won a world cross. I mean, people forget how sexist and, and and it was, really. The first African woman did not win a world cross country title until 1994. So it's just a totally different era. It's the era when, you know, the Bill Rogers and the Frank Shorters and the Alberta Salazers of the world were dominating on the men's side. And, you know, with the professionalization of the sport and the Africans coming in, particularly on the women's side, it's just so much harder now than it was back then to, to win one of those titles. So, um, you know, Lynn had a fantastic career. Yes. Her career accomplishments probably excel Shalene's, but the level of competition wasn't the same. Yeah. I'm just glad we could bring some nuance to this discussion as opposed to just someone blurting out, Oh, she won New York. She must be the best ever. I mean, you know, I'm just glad we had that discussion. Oh, Tom Brady won a Super Bowl. He's the best ever. And then he won five more. I mean, I think we can, you know, it, it, if we, if you want to argue that someone's better than Tom Brady, I just, please go right ahead. Before we move to our next topic, John, I'll let you come up with that next topic. We need to give a shout out to the sponsors. And I think the sponsor this week should be the Let's Run.com shoe site. Let's Run.com slash shoes. We have the best reviews. We also have the best prices. So if you need shoes right now, go on there. Click on the link, purchase them, and we will make some money. If you don't need shoes right now, tell us what shoes you're running in, what you think of them, and review them to help somebody else out. Let's run.com slash shoes. And if you need to reach us, 844-538-LET'S RUN. 844-538-7786. Wait, remember the tip jar? We got to get back on that. At World Championships, it was 2 a.m. We said we give all tips to John. There's a tip jar at the bottom of the podcast. If your podcast asks... App, some podcast apps automatically, you guys already know how to tip. But I should pull up my phone right now and see how to do this. I think you can give like weekly. Maybe people should do weekly. We got a few tips, Robert. We got to update John on how much money he's getting. But once again, people, all tips to Jonathan Galt on the podcast. 
I was starting to worry. Either we weren't getting tipped or Weldon was just parking it for himself because I haven't seen any of this. Some people gave 10 bucks and then I thought about it. Would you rather get 10 bucks or someone say, hey, I'm going to give like a coffee a month, like, you know, four bucks a month. Oh, yeah. Get, I would say the monthly donation. That's the way to go. While we're talking about pumping up our own egos, how about you guys rate and review our podcast as well? Share it to your friends, maybe post it on your social media. Do you know like a running nerd who doesn't listen to us? Let them know. I mean, you're going to get the real authentic views about uh, the sport of track and field. And let's pivot now. This this story, I didn't even expect this to be a story one week ago because I didn't know it was happening. But Leonard Correa, 207.56 in Amsterdam, the fastest debut marathon by an American man of all time. And he only got 11th place in the race, which shows you how deep Amsterdam was. But... I mean, this is crazy. The guy ran world. He ran worlds on the track two weeks before. He got thirteenth in the ten k, and then the Amsterdam elite list trickles out, and he's on it. And I'm like, Leonard Curry, USA. And then I, what I was thinking initially is like, you know how there are people like Joss Fat Boy or I think Emmanuel Bohr, where there are like one who runs for Kenya and one who runs for America. I'm like, maybe there's another Leonard Courier in Kenya and they've confused it and put his name and, you know, as part of the U S and the entry list. No, it's actually Leonard Courier of the W cap. I own a college alumni and yeah, two of seven fifty six. I mean, I'm not totally shocked given that he was a sub 60 half marathoner. He, he's an Olympian in the 10,000 who's run 27. Uh, look, I'll look up his PR right here, but it's 27 low uh, 2720 for 10,000. And he was running in the vapor flies. So, are you guys surprised, impressed? What are your reactions to Leonard Courier and his 207? I mean, it is the fastest ever by an American for a debut. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised, right? He's run under f- an hour for the half. Brian Hall did that when he was a natural born marathoner. You don't have to be a sub 27 guy to be a very good marathoner. The marathoning world's kind of crazy now, right? He runs that. As Americans, we're all super excited, but he gets 11th in the race. It just shows these races. Some of the non-majors, you know, they don't give big appearance fees, but they just invite a bunch of people. And, I mean, the game is shifting. Then you have the new shoes. So you want to take a couple minutes off for that, a minute off for that. I mean, just slightly changes how I view some of these marathon times. But very good run. I mean, you could argue him and Rupp are the favorites for the trials right now. Yeah, John, I'm not surprised by it at all. I mean, he's a sub-60-minute half marathoner. I'm just – I'm really curious – and by the way, Leonard, if you're listening to this podcast or Scott Simmons, your coach, we've been trying to reach you since before the race, try to get out to get the scoop to see if he was actually, I'm, I'm really curious to find out if he was training for this race and sort of the 10,000 was just like an afterthought or was the 10,000 the focus and he just hopped on and, and ran the marathon. That makes it even more impressive. But, you know, he went out in like basically 206 pace and then faded a little bit. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. I mean, he's a better 10,000 meter runner than, somebody like Scott Fobble or Jared Ward. So I would think that he would be better than them at the marathon. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that really the, the question becomes is how many of these people, is anyone else going to move up to the marathon for the trials? Because I think that any of these 10,000, these 27 minute low guys that were born in Kenya that are now running for the U S team and the 10,000 could, could be factors in the marathon. Well, I mean, there's only one guy really you're pegging with that, and that's Chadrick Kipchichia, right, Robert? Unless there's someone else who I'm not thinking of. No, right. And I don't expect him to do it because he's never run a half marathon before. You know, so he hasn't shown any, any indication that he even wants to run a marathon. If he hasn't done a half, he doesn't have a qualifier for the Olympic trials right now. Um, yeah. So that would be the only other one really, you know, on that front that would be, I would say, 
very scary if if you're you know Jared Ward or Scott Fobble or one of these guys that, that thinks you have a good shot. Uh, but to me, I, I think that you know there's a thread on the message board. Someone saying there's a new favorite. I think they were calling right. They were calling career the new favorite for, for the Olympic trials, and then saying that Rupp was second. I, I would think that career and Rupp would be you know near locks for the team. I'm no, no, no. I'm not calling Courier a near lock because he ran 207.56 in Amsterdam. Jared Ward and Scott Fable both ran 209 in Boston, which I think, and they didn't, they also didn't do it in the Vaporflies. Now, obviously, they won't be racing in the Vaporflies at the trials either, but I think that those two performances are fairly close. Like 209 on a tougher course in Boston in a championship style marathon, I, I think that's pretty close to a 207 high in Amsterdam. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't call career a lock. He's also only done one marathon in his career. Like Jared Ward was sixth in the 2016 Olympics. We got to remember that. So I think it makes it a lot more interesting because I now view there's sort of four guys who are cut above the rest of the field and there's only three spots, but I also don't think that, yeah, I'm sure there are some guys who just ran 210 in Chicago or some other ones who might be able to come up and grab one of those spots. But to me, the favorite is still Galen Rupp. I made the mistake in 2016 with his track resume and everything he'd done, I still was like, oh, I'm going to pick, I, I think I picked Ritz for the win, which, you know, looking back is insane because Ritz is just, I think he's just been too injury prone the last few years. But I didn't pick Galen Rupp to win that time, even though he was clearly the most talented runner in the field. I'm picking Galen Rupp to win this Olympic trials right now. Like, you know, unless we get word that he's like still help, still injured and he can't come back, he has to be viewed as the favorite. John, 209 is not the same as 207, particularly when he went out in 63 flat. And yes, Jared Ward wasn't wearing vapor flies, but he's wearing Saucony's version of it. This guy's a professor. I think he's got his own version of a of a shoe that should be banned. And, and let's talk about this. The breaking news. I think it's out yesterday. Was it Sean Engel that had it, John? That the, the, the IAAF may just be allowing any shoe from now on that's not mechanicized. That's fine if they want to do that going forward. The main thing I would like to see is a rule that is clear, one number one, and number two that is enforced. So we need to know what the rules are going forward. But then, how are you going to ban people like Oscar Pistorius with fake legs? You know, we have wheelchair racing; they don't race their able bodied runners. I think there needs to be some sort of, I don't know. I'm not really sure if I, if I really like that rule. But even if that is the rule, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go back to 2016. I'm dead serious about this. We need to validate those Olympic marathon results. We need to validate them. The shoes were illegal, and it was a huge advantage, and it's wrong. It greatly impacted that race. The 2016 Olympic marathon results need to be invalidated. The Nike shoes were against the rules, as written, and nothing's been done about it. Way bigger deal than doping. Come on, Robert. That's ridiculous. I understand the point. I think really the shoes were an unfair advantage Olympics because nobody had access to that technology, but they're not going to go back and invalidate Olympic results because of shoes from three years ago. But... Going forward, the Sean Engel article is pretty troubling to me in some ways. We can't just allow anything goes because we don't want athletes winning races because they have shoes that no one else has. This is not car racing. This is not something else. We're trying to track and field has always been about who is the fastest, not who has the best technology. So if they're going to allow any technology for shoes, they need to make some rule about the commercial availability of the shoes. The shoe has to be commercial commercially available, say, for six months before it can be used in competition. And that way, other athletes can decide if they want to use that shoe and whether it's fair. 
it might make more sense to just put a limit on stack heights or something like that on these shoes to level the playing field. But we're going to have separate record books. Um, swimming had these swimsuits for a while, and they decided to, buy, to ban them. And I guess we need to look into more why swimming went that route. But we don't want people winning races because they have shoes that no one else has. And if rules aren't in place, ensuring a level playing field, even if any type of technology is allowed, but that you have to know what the technology is and available to different shoe companies or different runners, at least they have access to it. You know, come on, this is very troubling. I think there are two points here, Robert, that made that I want to address. And one is, yeah, stripping the Olympic medals. I mean, this might be your least popular take of all time, Robert. You're really trying to get Elliot Kipchoge stripped of his Olympic gold medal. I really don't think you're going to get any support of that. But then second part of this is, Sean Ingle put it up in his in his article as well, which is really good. You should read it on The Guardian, about the, the reasonably available to all thing. We have had Nike athletes racing in prototypes this entire track season. Sifan Hassan broke it, broke the world record for the mile in prototypes. Laura Muir has broke British records in prototypes. There were I can't count how many athletes sponsored by Nike came through the mix zone wearing their prototype spike at the World Championships. I don't understand if IAAF has a rule that shoes have to be real, a type of shoe has to be really reasonably available to all. How do prototypes fit that? I guess they're saying that actually spikes and that all spikes are available to all. It needs to be clarified if you're not going to, you know, you need to enforce it or don't have the rule at all. Yes. I think I, guys, oh, okay, fine. Don't go back and validate it, but it, that's a bigger deal than a lot of these minor drugs that people are taking on. I don't really expect it to be happen, but I'm saying it should happen. But I think we're all in agreement on the shoes. The rules need to be clear. They need to be enforced. And the clear thing is we all three of us agree. They need to be commercially available. The, the rules should be simple. For an Olympic year, if it's not out on sale by January 1st of that year, you can't wear them, period. End of story. At the beginning of the year, whatever, the companies announce what shoes are for sale for that year. Those are the shoes you can race in. And maybe you need to indicate at the start line what shoe you're in. And there we go. Because this is becoming kind of absurd. I just want to say, though, Nike is not the only sh- company that has had its athletes race in prototypes. Des Linden won the 2018 Boston Marathon in Brooks prototypes. Parker Stinson at the Chicago Marathon this year didn't even know what kind of shoe he was racing in. So there are other companies that do this. Nike is obviously the most prominent and their athletes the most famous at the moment. But you know, every company needs to abide by this if we're going to enforce it. Well, I've said that. I've never had a problem with prototypes like you guys are saying because I, the rule is type of shoe. So if you just have another another normal spike like everybody else, it's not a big deal if they've made it extra wide for you or something like that. But if you have a, a totally different shoe, you know, that no one else has, then it's, it's, it's a bigger issue. And that's why I've been talking about the Saucony shoes. It's also a bit different, though, for the other shoe companies, John, when you're playing catch up and trying to copy someone else's technology, you know, so if, if fine, if, but then if someone drops a completely new technology for the next Olympics and nobody has Adidas has one, I mean, it looks like in retrospect now, I think the boost foam was giving Adidas athletes an advantage. And maybe we didn't realize that or who knows, maybe they should have marketed that better. It wasn't as big an advantage as this new technology, but the IWF would never let someone throw a different, a special javelin that no one else had access to. So for shoes, we need a level playing field. We don't want people winning because they have a drug no one has access to or because they have shoes no one has access to. So, uh, you know, and I, I, I personally would like a consistent record book. They don't juice the baseballs and change different baseballs. I mean, or I guess they have, and there's some concern about that. 
They do juice the, juice the baseballs. Well, I know, and a lot of purists are upset about that. Golf, there are very there are huge limits on like the golf technology, what can be in the balls and what can be in, in the clubs. The power is still coming from the person hitting the ball, so people are like, oh, it's still coming from their legs, blah blah blah. But you know, shoes are, are kind of taking a different role, and maybe we want to have that. But I I would have no problem if we went back to a lower stack height rule. Okay, but he, here's my issue. You guys, Robert's solution was anything that's not available on January 1st of that year is not allowed to compete in. Weldon said six months commercially available. Well, let's play that example out. Let's see Nike right now has some super technology that we haven't even thought of yet that gives you 10% running economy gains. They debut this shoe January 1st, 2020. Their athletes are allowed to wear it because it's been commercially available. But no other company even knows about this, and they're all scrambling to respond, and they can't even get a shoe that's available to competition until January 1st, 2021, because that's what the rules say. I mean, is that fair? Because under your guidelines, that will be allowed. No, if they want to wear the Nike shoes in the race, they should get permission from their own sponsor to wear them. Right. And also, I almost feel like- You just feel like that'll happen. Adidas isn't going to let their top runners run Nike shoes in the Olympic marathon and say, sorry, our shoes aren't good enough. That's why they wore Nike shoes. Then I guess it's like race car running. You should have picked a better sponsor. That's the problem. Is that what we would want our sport to be? No, we want the sport to be about who's the best runner. So, John, there's a couple issues here. One, should you be allowed to like patent some of this technology? You could say if the sh- technology is going to be used in competition, it cannot be patented. I mean, like you could have you, people say, oh, that's crazy, but commercial advantage and fair competition are completely separate different things um or maybe there could be some rule i don't know like you're allowed to just take the shoe and put your own logo on it i mean i'm sure that's a that that's a trademark issue but mark them up put your own logo on it like i don't know is that an issue like where do we draw the line here i mean kobe bryant nike athlete and he wears whatever i guess nike's now the nba sponsor i don't even know people wear different stuff the shoes whatever i mean so in the past everyone wore the shoe of their sponsor maybe they won't in the future i mean like we just assume these things have to the the commercial interest and fair play interest uh, don't have to align um but i'm most concerned about fair play and I think the six month rule for fair play is fine. Assuming shoe people will just be allowed their shoe companies. Mizuno let their athletes, the Atlanta track club athletes wear Nike shoes. So that's why I think you should put some limit on the technology, but where you draw that, maybe that's too complicated. And these people can't figure that out. And just because one article was, was written saying that this committee may allow it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be the case. So it could be more outrage and who knows. Well, I trust Sean Engel's reporting, but here's the thing. The committee hasn't met yet. I mean, right? So they could change it's their mind. It's a complex issue. I think that's the thing we need to think say here. The IAAF does not have an easy job. It's not just like, oh, do this and everything's fair again. It's typical. There's a lot of balancing interests. And, you know, in the NFL, I don't know any athlete who's sponsored by an apparel company who or a shoe company who doesn't actually wear those shoe com- shoes in competition when they're allowed to. Like Tom Brady, he's an Under Armour athlete. The NFL, all the NFL gear is Nike. But his shoes are always Under Armour in the games. I think that's the like. I don't think he'd just say, "Oh yeah, these shoes, they, Nike makes better quarterback shoes. I'm going to wear those." No, you got to you have duty to your sponsor. So there's a lot of conflicting interests here. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? Though, because in the past, sure, some people had their shoes, and more athletes wore certain shoes than others. But like, I think by and large, we would have said, "Yeah, you're wearing a track spike. There's not that much difference. You know, no one's at a competitive disadvantage because of who their sponsor is." 
And this could be the first time people are sort of saying that. So the sport's at a new era. I don't. I think m- most fans don't want that. They don't want someone winning because of what company somebody's sponsored by. The shoe companies obviously want that. But uh, where do they go with this? They th- First and foremost, they need a level playing field. All right, well, let's move on a little bit here. Speaking of shoe companies, we got some news earlier this week. Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike, is stepping down in January of 2020. I think he did an interview where he said it wasn't related to the Salazar NOP controversy, but I do find it very interesting timing. You know, the Wall Street Journal had not, they had reported Sarah Germano on Twitter said, you know, he, he hadn't given any indication this was coming. You know, it seemed like he wanted to be there for a few more years at least. And now just weeks after a scandal rocks the company, Mark Parker is stepping down. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, the, you can say it's not related. He's going to stay chairman of the board. He's still going to be involved. He's going to get, someone told me, you know, he'll still get his bonus and all this stuff. So financially, I mean, the guy's obviously well set for life. But, you know, it might just be easier for Nike. Hey, you step aside. You're still very actively involved. Someone's going to replace you anyway. We just don't have to answer these questions anymore. And he's like, yeah, cool. I don't care. Or it could just have nothing to do with it at all. I mean, Weldon says that nobody, the public doesn't care about London or Chicago. Do you think the public really cares about Alberto Salazar? I mean, I did talk to that rich millionaire that I know who said he, he would sell his Nike stock because he thought it should poor judgment on Mike, Mike, Mark Parker's stock. So maybe a few people like him do care, but I don't think the average person even, well, I guess it was on page two of the Wall Street Journal. So maybe some of them know about it. But this is, again, kind of like the bias of the Shailene Flanagan recent win. Why is anyone talking about Kevin Plank of Under Armour? The 47-year-old co-founder, he's stepping aside. He's He's been the CEO for 23 years. He's going to kind of move to the Phil Knight role and become the, just the chairman of the board. That was announced this week. No one's repping Tom Brady, Baltimore baby, Under Armour. Okay, well, yeah, because they didn't just have their highest profile tra- training group you know, that dissolved and the head coach banned for four years. I agree. It pro- I'm guessing it probably... The Salazar thing, I'm sure, didn't help, but I doubt that, you know, I doubt that was the primary reason. It will be interesting, though. John Donahoe is the the new CEO coming in. Will he continue funding Salazar's appeal? Will anything change from that respect? I think that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens on that appeal. That's huge, because if, if Nike doesn't fund that, then there's no way that appeal is going to go forward, and, and it's going to happen cause, cost you know millions of dollars, the appeal. And we've gotten some information on the appeal. If they do do the appeal, and I think Salazar's appeal would have had to have been filed a day or two ago. Now, that's often not released for a few weeks. So, But that, that decision should have been made, I think, this week at some point, according to the rules. If the appeal is fine, is filed, what we've learned is that it's going to be a de novo appeal, which means that everything is argued again. So it's basically a brand new case. You're talking millions. They're not just like appealing a certain part of the case. They're going to argue the whole case again before Cass. Which is crazy because the initial case took two years to adjudicate. Salazar is currently banned. His ban expires in you know September 2023. So it, it could end up, even if he gets validated, it could be until like you know 2021 or something, and he's already served half his ban. I mean, I've heard some appeals have take, lasted longer than the appeal, um, than the ban. But this will be interesting, right? Because like in a U.S. court, if you appeal, you have to overturn an error at the other level. This is a new trial, essentially. So you saw it could try to get them for things that they lost in the first round. Alberto could try to get everything gone, obviously. 
Um, but Nike spent millions of dollars defending him. Well, we assume we don't. We don't know how much they spent. John, it, it, there's no question. Seven figures. I heard maybe five to ten million. Say even a million dollars. Think like how much that goes for distance running in the United States. And now they're going to double down on the appeal, which is fine. That, that's their right. But this John Donahue guy, who guy it's interesting, right? Because like Nike has dropped the ball consistently on the anti-doping front. They could have been a pioneer, a leader. And if you go back all the way up to Athletics West, they've never really stood out as a leader for clean sport. And is it Donahue, Donahue or Ho? You said Ho, John. It's H-O-A. It's say H-O-E is the last three letters of his last name. I assume it's John Donahue. Donahue. Um, I mean, he's got an opportunity here, right? Like, what is Nike, at the very least, if they want to appeal, like, shouldn't, what about Alberto Salazar giving prescription drugs to athletes, you know, off-label prescription drugs to his athletes? He's not a doctor. That That's a huge problem. It's a liability issue. Like, is there any sanctioning there? Has there been any discipline? Nike's announced nothing. The Rosas, they still fund the Rosas groups. There have been multiple positive tests. Why isn't Nike holding its athletes to a higher standard? It just, God, they could do so much for clean sport. Um, they do so much for cutting edge sport, but like clean sport, they could do. Well, there's our weekly Alberto Salazar quota. We've hit that. Move on. No, 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 Najan. I think we're not down with, with Parker. Okay. There's a thread on Let's Run. Um, did you guys know Mark Parker ran at Penn State? I only learned this about two days ago. So we ask what type of runner was Mark Parker at Penn State. I didn't even know he's like a distance runner. I heard his wife was a good runner. That's what I'd always heard. And our very own George Malley, one of the moderators, George admits to using steroids um, for a brief time, as they all say. As a member of the Nike Oregon Project, he admitted to being on steroids. He wasn't part of the Oregon Project, Robert. Come on. You mean Athletics West? Excuse me, Athletics West. I asked on this thread what type of runner he was, and George is like, you didn't know? Like, I ran with him at Penn State. And essentially, George claims that Parker was sort of like the total walk-on guy, technically really not on the team, who like just was hanging on and whatnot. And I think to me, that sort of explains some stuff. That type of guy, I mean, we'd all be very impressed with Alberto Salazar, but that guy might be really geeked out by Alberto Salazar, because I was very curious about the language that Parker used in these emails with about the doping experiment with the sun with Dr. Brown. He's like, it'd be curious how much male topical hormone could trigger a positive test. And I'm like, who uses language like that? But if you're kind of like wanting to be in the cool crowd competitively and you're like Alberto Salazar's doctor is sending this language, you might mimic the language back. Cause I think in day-to-day usage, no one uses that language. So I, this sort of, for me, supported the idea that, you know, Parker wasn't involved in anything nefarious. Who uses that language? A scientist uses the language. You know, Parker comes, I think, I assume he was some sort of engineering geek nerd. It, didn't he invent the Nike air shoe? And that's how he became the CEO. I'm seeing results here on the Let's Run message board from the Penn State. Now they have, a, their course now is more than five miles. It's like 5.1 miles or 5.2. I don't know if it's still like that, but he was next to last place in 3012. So if he's some engineering geek, I mean, he might be using that type of language. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I do think it could explain a lot. Like you're barely on the team. You're excited to be on the team. And now you're working with Alberto Salazar and sort of, I, my understanding is, you know, I mean, John Capriotti technically was Alberto's boss, but John Capriotti's office is in the Alberto Salazar building. So how do you really, how does anyone hold Alberto Salazar responsible for anything, anything? Nobody really could do that there except for Phil Knight himself. Now I think, have we satisfied our Salazar quota? 
We all t- okay to move on here, gentlemen. Let's talk award season. It's still a ways away in the film industry, but you know, track season's over for running, so I think it's time to talk some awards. We've got the World Athlete of the Year Award nominees announced, and there's nine, oh, ten men, ten women. So, oh, actually, maybe it's eleven. I don't know. I'll read through. I'll read through the nominees here. Here are the males. Donovan Brazier, Christian Coleman, Joshua Cheptegei, Timothy Chariot, Stephen Gardner, Sam Kendricks, Elliot Kipchoge, Noah Lyles, Daniel Stahl, Christian Taylor, Carsten Wolholm. Do you guys have strong opinions? Out of that list, who should be the 2019 IAF World Athlete of the Year? I, I think that for the men, it, uh, it has to be either Warholm or Gardner. Weren't both of them undefeated in their event? Both of them did exceptionally well. I've got to go with Warholm. I think he was what the history's number two fastest all time or number three all fastest all time. Ha, ha, what was wrong with this season? I agree with you 100%, Robert. I think Warholm is my answer. Uh, undefeated, number two all time at 4692, world champion. He ran, he was the hero indoor champion as well, uh, which is at 400 meters flat, which was really impressive. Uh, 45.0 there. So he's my pick. But I think, you know, just give some shout outs. I mean, some of these guys did have phenomenal seasons. I mean, Joshua Cheptegei won World XC and the 10K title at Worlds. That was incredible. Uh, Timothy Chariot, essentially one of the most dominant 1500 meter seasons we've ever seen. He lost he lost his opening 1500, and then that was it. And then Elliot Kipchoge. I mean, if you want to, I don't know how much credit you want to give to Ineos 159 Challenge, but obviously that was super impressive. And then in London earlier this year, he set the course record and ran 202.37. He won last year. I don't think he's going to win again, but... No, I'm giving him no credit for an exhibition. Zero credit for that. I mean, yeah, Chapter Guy also, John, won the Diamond League 5000, right? I mean, he had a great year. So I would say finalists, there's three finalists. I think they probably go with Warholm. I think Warholm, Chariot, Chapter Guy is a pretty good three finalists right there. Yeah, I feel like Gardner, even though he's undefeated, he probably won't get it. Chapter Guy sort of discount the Diamond League 5,000 win. I think that was kind of fluke, but he did win it, and he won the 10,000 and he won cross. So that's pretty tremendous. Did Kipchoge win in 2017 as well with the breaking two thing or not, John? No, he, he didn't win that year. He, he won in 2018 when he broke the actual world record. Yeah, I feel like Kipchoge shouldn't get it. I mean, both runs were great, but for the breaking two thing, I mean, the betting odds were that he would – make this accomplishment so most people thought he would do what he would do what would i don't know someone else do under those conditions i mean obviously he's the best marathoner in the world but like i don't know if if that was his max or not because there's all these other variables at play and it's an exhibition so i don't think someone should be rewarded with athlete of the year for an exhibition event um especially when they when we've already shown you know, that, that, that boundary could essentially be broken. We thought it was impossible a couple of years ago. And now we're like, wait, we've removed enough variables that it's actually not nearly as hard as we thought. One of the biggest variables that they still have kept the same is Elliot Kipchoge. We've shown it's possible for him. We haven't shown it's possible for anyone else. Can I say that Kaylee just ran 201.41? I mean, I guess it's, that's, he almost ran two minutes faster than that, right? Over two minutes faster. But that's the problem with these shoes. It's really sort of messed up the record books. And I see why swimming went back, but it sounds like track may not want to mess with this. You know, Nike supports probably more federations than anybody. So people talk about, you know, unconscious bias. And Paula Radcliffe has an article out, I think now in the Telegraph, and 
she defends herself from claims to bias and this sort of stuff and the doping stuff and being a Nike show, which I don't think she is. I mean, she's spoken out about Gatlin and others in the past, but like if somebody pays you your federation, a lot of money, you just might naturally, it's human nature to be inclined to them. I'm not saying that's a bad thing or anything, but so interesting to see what this shapes out in the next six months. All right. And we've got women's nominees. This might be the most competitive list I've ever seen for women. Like it's going to be very hard to pick. And I'll list off the names here. Beatrice Chipkowicz, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, Katerina Johnson-Thompson, Safan Hassan, Brigid Cosguy, Maria Lasitskine, Malika Mahambo, Dalila Muhammad, Salwa Eid Nasa, Helen O'Beary, Yulema Rojas. I mean, here are the women who I don't even think have a real chance of winning it. Is Chepkoech, who is all, uh, basically undefeated, almost unbeatable, steeplechase world champion. Shelly Ann Fraser Price, who ran 10.71 and won the worlds in the 100. And uh, Salwa Eid Nasa ran 48.14, probably the fastest, you know, the fastest non Eastern Bloc time of all time. Helen O'Beary, world cross and world champion on the track. I don't think any of those women are even going to be in the top three because you've got Safan Hassan, broke the mile world record, broke the 5K world record on the roads, and won the world titles in the 15 and the 10K. Utterly ridiculous. Bridget Cosguy won London, the most competitive marathon of the year, in 2018, and then crushed the world record to run 214.04 in Chicago. And I don't think either of those should be the winner because... Bridget, I mean, Dalil Muhammad broke the world record in the 400-meter hurdles not once but twice, including in the world championship final. I think Dalil Muhammad's the winner, but it, I mean, where do you guys stand on this? I think this is one of the most competitive fields I've ever seen. Well, John, it's funny. When the list came out, it was before Chicago, and I'm like, Sifan Hassan. I didn't even think about it. I didn't really think about Dalil Muhammad for some reason. I just brain fart. But then... Once she started reading them again, I'm like, okay, Koskai has to get it. She just crushed the world record in the marathon. Like, it's so sick. I don't know. I think all three are very worthy. I mean, you can make an argument for all three. But I think, yeah, it's between those three for sure. Brojo, we need your hot take here. Set us straight. I think Koskai's performance is, I mean, the world record is te- on an absolute scale the most impressive. Like, she beat a world record that has stood. I mean, how long had the 400 hurdle world record lasted that Muhammad broke? Actually, the same amount of time. It was tw- 2003 was when both the marathon and the 400 hurdles records were set. Okay. I guess I'd be inclined to give it to Muhammad simply because I think there's less likelihood that she's doping. She did the world record on the, uh, twice. And if, if we're breaking a 16-year-old record, um, but she wasn't undefeated like Kosuke. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, Dalila Muhammad lost two races. She lost two Diamond Leagues, including the Diamond League final, to Sydney McLaughlin. And Bridget Cosguy, I mean, if you look at her, what more do you want from her? She crushed everyone to win London and had the fastest second half of a marathon ever, sub-67. And then she runs 214 in Chicago, and that's not enough to win. I mean, really, she couldn't have done much more. So I, I don't have any problem with giving it to her. I really think the two world records by Muhammad is ridiculous, including the World Championship final, but I also don't mind giving it to Cosguy. I mean, with Kosuke also, like, Paula didn't have those shoes. So do we take a minute and a half off? And then she wouldn't have the record. I mean, so I think there's that. With any world record, obviously, just the nature of the sport, you're going to question, is it clean? But that's for everyone, even Hassan, who didn't break a record. 
Well, what's wrong with Hassan, John? I mean, she's the 10, 15 double crushing everybody like that. Nobody thought that was possible. I don't have a problem giving it to Hassan either. She, she, not only the 10, 15 double, the way she did it, closing her final 1600 of the 10K in 417, and then coming back and running 351 from the front in the 15. I mean, again, I eight, any of those three winning it, maybe they should just split the award three ways because those were three of the most incredible seasons I've ever seen. I kind of feel like it's splitting between who's better, Shailene Flanagan or Dina Castor. It's very hard to figure out. Yes, I hate when they split awards, but in this case, it might be warranted. Guys, I think we might need to have a new award. This would be the obviously the premier award in the sport once you hear what I propose. The Let's Run.com Person of the Year. Kind of like, you know, Time Magazine has its Person of the Year. What do you guys think? Well, I think the thing is, the time person of the year, that's not like the MVP of the world. It's sort of the person who had the most impact. So we've seen past winners. I mean, Donald Trump has won. Uh, Vladimir Putin has won. It's not always about, you know, it's not, I I wouldn't say it's necessarily the most prestigious award. So it's kind of interesting. Like, who do you think the winner should be this year? Oh, John, that was kind of a perfect setup. I was like, would, would, would Alberto be our winner this year? He's certainly got some strong consideration. I mean, he coached Sifan Hassan to this, ridiculous double at worlds an incredible season and he also got banned from the sport for four years so i think he merits strong consideration for let's run person of the year or do we give to the person who's like generated the most traffic for let's run in the year i mean this could be very difficult everyone we might have to start implementing a tip jar for let's run i mean with alberto banned for four years traffic and page views could really 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 decline i mean Someone needs to cut the New York City Marathon and cheat there. And that would start a thread and that will become, that's your easy way to become Let's Run Person of the Year. Figure out a creative way to cut the course at New York City Marathon. Yeah, the cheating threads are ridiculously over the top. It's crazy how popular those are. I keep meaning to run the Lehigh Valley Marathon the same time as Mike Rossi. I I forget to do it. But while y'all are talking about Alberto and all of that, Baldwin mentioned Paula Radcliffe. There was one thing I wanted to bring up and we talked a little bit about China last year, last week. And this is actually from an article I found on that Chinese situation by Ethan Strauss in The Athletic. It's a great quote from Upton Sinclair, folks. I just want to, American writer back in the day, just share a great quote. I love it with everyone. It's my favorite quote of the last month. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So I think that applies to so many people here. This is why Craig Masbach cannot be commenting on this stuff. This is why I actually think Paul was right. There's been no proof that these athletes were dopers. So I think she's fine for saying that, but it is sort of conflicting to have them talking about that. And I don't want to get into the China Twitter thing again, but one thing we didn't mention last week, which is very important, Twitter is actually banned in China. So the fact that all these Chinese were supposedly outraged by this tweet, which they didn't even see is absurd. It was all fake news. I mean, you don't think the Chinese government can access Twitter? I'm pretty sure they can see that if they want. Those are the people who'd be upset. It's not like the Chinese citizenry were revolting about this thing. But actually, so we talked about Bridget Cosguy a little bit. I want to bring this up because this was just sort of a strange episode from earlier this week. And it concerned Bridget Cosguy in a press conference that they had at the Athletics Kenya headquarters in Nairobi. And they brought in Bridget and they brought in her coach, Eric Camayo. And Coach Camayo, he had a quote in there. He was talking about like saying how she's been tested and that sort of thing. And this is the quote from the article from the Daily Nation. Bridget was tested six times before the Chicago Marathon and before that eight times ahead of London Marathon. 
She will never dodge a test. There are three times the anti-doping officials did not test her and they made a big deal out of it, yet she was sick or had left training the training venue when they arrived. Let them test her to the last minute. We are ready for the tests. And I read this and I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, did her coach just admit that she missed three tests? And like being sick, I've never really heard that as an excuse for not being able to take a test. Like Christian Coleman, when he had left his training venue or he wasn't there, he got whereabouts failures. I... I was just, there was so much about this I didn't understand. I was kind of curious why I wasn't followed up on. And then Justin Horniker, who's an American running rider, he followed up with Federico Rosa, reached out to Federico, and this was the explanation from the Rosa, Rosas. And he said, I think something was lost in translation. Missing three tests in one year is a clear violation of anti doping rules. Even if this is a very serious and private issue, and I should not disclose any information, just to stop any rumors around the matter. Bridget in the last 12 months has one missed test around December 2018 or early January 2019. So this whole thing was just sort of confusing to me. And I think I'd still like some clarification. I reached out to the anti-doping agency of Kenya. They have not gotten back to me at all. I, I don't know. I just, I know there, there were questions about her already based on the time. And I don't want to say like, if she didn't miss any tests, then I, I don't want to accuse her of that. But the, her coach's comments were a bit troubling to me. Clearly, if it was three official mistests, she would be banned. I think they would enforce that. I mean, the Coleman thing, the technicalities, the rules, but whatever, three tests in a year, you're gone. So I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe we could reach out to World Marathon Majors as well because they're in charge of some, or maybe they just pay for some of the heightened testing. But I, I tend to believe or trust the anti-doping authorities. They generally do a good thing. Maybe some of that's misguided because like, oh, I, th- I would assume like, a whole doping lab in Russia couldn't be covering stuff up that they would catch something like that. But clearly shit goes on. So who knows what to think of it? To me, one missed test is huge. Two, even huger. And three is obviously a ban. But if I was doping, I would purposely miss a test. But it's kind of hard because you wouldn't go out in public, right? Because you're supposed to be a certain place. You'd have to avoid the place you're supposed to be that day. But, you know, John, I encourage you to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm going to try to keep doing some digging. I, what I found weird, though, is if, if she actually did have three missed tests, why would her coach come out and say this at some press conference? It doesn't make any sense. So I don't know if he was misquoted or what, but there's some confusion. And it seems like Federica Rosa has tried to set the record straight here, and that's he's saying she has one official missed test. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd love to hear the athletics, the uh, anti-doping agency of Kenya, I'd like to hear their explanation as well. Yeah, I think some of it's a little bit being lost in translation. I actually am encouraged by the fact that they said that the anti-doping authorities made a big deal of it because the reality is people talk about three missed tests. You're not allowed to have any missed tests. Like if the dope, if, if the drug testers are there and they see you, you have to take the test. But that's different. That's refusing to provide a sample versus a missed test. Well, I know. I'm just, I'm just, well, I think a lot of people don't understand this. Like if you're there and they see you and you miss a test, that's it. Now you could theoretically just hide out in your house all day. As long as they don't see you through the window that, that then that's just like missing a test. It's not refusing a test. So they should be, you know, you, you indicate where you're supposed to be and you're supposed to be there. So it, it should be a big deal if you miss one. Speaking of doping guys, I think we need a sponsor's plug, but I'm not sure what you guys think of this. I need a ruling from the let's run.com nation. Got an email here. I'm the manager of the website steroids.ws. We'd be interested in one or more of the banner ads on your forums. What are the prices, banner sizes, and payment methods? Thank you. 
So should we make steroids.ws a sponsor of the website? Well, as hilarious as I think it would be, I've, I've got to vote no on this one, given our fairly firm anti-doping stance. <laughs> I'm all for if the price is right. The other day I was on Let's Run and there was an, art, an ad. Did, you, did y'all get this ad? Actually, this might reveal something about my Google search history. It was for manscaping. It was like an electric razor. Yeah, I mean, it's pro- that probably has more to do with you than me, Robert, because I haven't seen that ad anywhere. Uh, the ad tracking is weird. I swear to God, I got to Doha and I saw an ad for Ashley Madison. And I'm like, well, this is weird. I told my wife that she kind of laughed. <laughs> but I'm like, does it know like I'm thousands of miles from home? Uh, pr- probably, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're in a hotel. Um, okay, do we want to talk? Do you, I guess I'll ask you guys, do you have any interest in talking about NCAA cross country, given that we just had two of the biggest meets of the regular season, the Nutty Co Invitational at Wisconsin, pre-Nats at Indiana State? Uh, shall we talk about that for a second? The enthusiasm is overwhelming, but I shall move forward nonetheless. Uh, yeah, so what we got basically, what we kind of got a confirmation of what we already knew. The Northern Arizona men, they are the favorites. They stomped everyone uh, at Wisconsin. They look on track for a fourth consecutive NCAA title, which is just incredible. And then on the women's side, Arkansas is actually – this is the, sort of the big story on the women's side. Is Arkansas is trying to go for the calendar year triple crown. They already won the indoor and outdoor titles uh, in track and field. They have never won the women's cross-country title. And last two years, they've essentially just choked in NCAAs. They've run really, really poorly. But at Nutty Comb, they ran – they were very impressive. They, they crushed the field. Um in that race, they had four women in the top 10, scored just uh, 62 points. Stanford was second in with 98 points. So th- those are sort of the two big team takeaways. And I guess individually, um, the winners at Wisconsin were Edwin Kurgard of Iowa State. He was third place last year at NCAAs. And Alicia Monson of Wisconsin, she was fourth in NCAAs last year, the NCAA Indoor 5000 champion. They were the individual champions and then BYU had a good day at pre-nats they won three of the four they won the women's individual men's individual women men's team they've second in the women's team race so that was a big weekend for them but I, I guess here's the thing I thought was really weird about this so the NCAA the USATF sorry USTF CCCA the coaches association has a national coaches poll and every week this year there has been one voter who has voted the Stanford men number one Every other week, NAU has had 10 of the 11 first place votes. NAU has beaten Stanford twice, including this past weekend. They smoked them at Wisconsin. Yet Stanford continues to get one first place vote in the coaches poll. And I, it totally baffles me. I don't understand it. doesn't baffle me. It's probably the NAU coach voting. No, because I'm, I was told Dennis Young pointed this out on Twitter. He said, you can vote for yourself. You can vote for your own team. Well, he doesn't want to vote for himself. Maybe I need to reach out to Mike Smith and get to the bottom of this because if that's not the explanation, I want an explanation. I kind of like it. It's like not giving these unanimous uh, Hall of Fame votes to the baseball players. John, I, I, you did. You were factually incorrect about one thing, though. You said NAU looks po- poised to win their what? This would be their fourth in a row? Yeah. To me, they look poised to win like five or six in a row. Have you seen the years of, of their runners? So their top runner, junior, their second runner, Jordy Bemis, senior. But the next three runners in the top five, freshman, freshman, freshman. That's pretty crazy. Then sophomore, junior. So 
not only are they going to win four in a row, they could win five or six. So maybe we should hope that Stanford wins just to have something different happen. But and it's for the Arkansas women. They've been running amazing, and I think even stronger than the years past. But I have absolutely no faith in them and their ability to get the job done at NCAs, given what they've done in so many times in the past, just completely choking. It, it doesn't. I remember when, when when I was in college and stuff. I used to. It was harder to fall cross country. You didn't fall on a weekly basis like you do now. I remember going to NCAs a couple of times and thinking, "There's no way the Arkansas men do win this year again, and they would win." The Arkansas women to me are like the opposite of that. I always think, "Oh, they're going to finally do well this year, and then they don't do well." So maybe they get over the hump with a win. That would be kind of a cool story, but there's no reason to to have faith in that. Have they ever been favored, favored to win? No, they they were considered a contender for the crown last year, but they. They underperformed severely the last two years. And I think if it's cold in Terre Haute, that could be a problem. But I urge them, find a transcript of this podcast, or better yet, hire someone to transcribe it, print it out, and post it to your bulletin board because Robert Johnson is officially an Arkansas hater. He has doubted you guys. Be interesting if you can prove him wrong. I don't root for anyone, but uh, you know, you've got a hater now. I mean, NAU, I, f- I feel a little pride. little flagstaff. When I moved out there, nobody trained out there. NAU was like the scrappy school that finished like third or fourth at nationals and you get all excited. But now, John, they're a powerhouse and the whole world trains out there. Shout out to Flagstaff and all the pioneers who are out there. I'm taking credit. I'm taking, you know, but I think I deserve 50% credit. I don't think John's necessarily right. I'm not a hater of Arkansas. I mean, Taylor Werner, I was so impressed with her in Austin, John, when she came back and doubled back, what, in the 5,000 in the middle of the heat and got, what, second? Yeah. Second to Danny Jones. You know, and if you look at, the, at their squad, I mean, I've always said this is the case on the men's side. It really helps to have older distance runners. I mean, obviously the NAU men this year, they're proving that not to be the true case. Women, sometimes women get worse as they get older, but look at the, they've got a season squad for Arkansas. Senior, 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 junior. Four women in the top nine. Very impressive. But John, are you confident now that the American winless streak on the individual side continues? I mean, I'm not totally confident, but I think it's hard to argue against Edwin Kurgar as the favorite individually. Just he, he was dominant. He pulled away with uh, 2K to go and won pretty camp comfortably. All I've heard from the Iowa State, you know, when I spoke to Jeremy Subbury, he's their assistant coach earlier this year. He's like, yeah, he's better than last year. He's more prepared for it. He has a winning mentality. I mean, outdoors on the track. He could have run the 10K. He could. He would have been a contender to win that race. Instead, he wanted to run the 5K because he's like, look, that's what Morgan McDonald and Grant Fisher are running. I want to test myself against them and need to improve my kick. So I really respect that. He's the top returner from last year. I do think it's his race to lose, but you know, we've seen bigger favorites than him lose in the past. I mean, you look at, just look at Edward Cheserak in 2016. Everyone thought he was going to win and Patrick Tiernan upset him. So I want to give some respect. Connor Mance of BYU, he's undefeated so far this year. He was top 10 last year as a as a redshirt freshman. Now, granted, he was a little older than usual as a redshirt freshman because he took his mission uh, at BYU. But he's running fantastic. He got another win at pre So he's probably America's best bet for a, for a contender. Joe Klecker is also of Colorado. He, I, he didn't have a – you know, he, I don't think he raced to his full ability – uh, at pre-Nats, but he's a guy who could be a contender. He's shown flashes, you know, especially indoors last season. Uh, but yeah, I think Kogat, Kogat has to be the favorite on the men's side. We've talked NCAA cross country. We've talked Amsterdam in terms of lunar career, but we haven't talked about guys is actually 
two things that I'm kind of surprised about. We haven't talked about who actually like won these races. Leonard Career was 11th. Both in Amsterdam and in Toronto last week, we had four men break 205.30 in both races. I mean, that's how crazy the world of marathoning is. These are, quote unquote, not Abbott Marathon majors, but you had eight men in two races break 205.30. I think the um, Canadian all-comers record fell. I think it's what now, 205 flat in Canada. But that race also served as the Canadian Olympic trials which was interesting to me the first time since 1984 that Canada had Olympic trials and rags to riches stories, huge PRs, Trevor Hopbar wins the women, the men's trials in 209.51 and Dana Pithoresk wins the women's in 229.05. They both ran like six or seven minute PRs, which was crazy and very impressive. Dana Pitoreski. Let's uh, I think that's how it's pronounced actually. So instead of talking about Phil Monroe who runs 205, we're going to talk about Trevor Hopbar, right? That's what you're saying, Robert. <laughs> Well, I wanted to shout out Phil Monroe and, and talk about that. Yes, but it's more interesting to me. I don't know why, but it just is. And I, I thought it was weird that they put the trials in the middle of the this bigger race. Like, if you're going to bother to have a trials, why wouldn't you just have its own thing like the Americans? And the weird thing is, I was thinking this, you know, in America, so many people like focus their post-collegiate career on trying to make the trials. And there's how many people? Probably 200 women are about to make it and over 100 men. Do we have the numbers right now? Can someone look those up? Way more than that. Oh, it's like, four, I think it's 400 women at this point, probably over 200 men. No, 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 no. Anyway. Yes. Oh, it, Robert, the standard's 245. Like, everyone's qualifying this year. It's ridic- I'll, I'll look it up, but it's. I think the qualifiers at this point, uh, it's probably over 400. And there's the new shoes, guys. Come on. Who are we kidding? But why, why is the standard 245 again? Because that's not the Olympic standard. We used to have the rule that- Because the- it was the- Olympic standard in 2016 was 245, and the rules were that they couldn't have a standard that was more difficult than the Olympic standard. So they kept that, and then late in the process, the IAAF changed the the qualifying system, and you know they weren't going to change but, the, so, the standards. It, I'm just interested in the psychology of this. So in America, you have to qualify, and we have hundreds of people doing it. Obviously, America is a much bigger country than Canada. But the interesting thing was, in Canada, anyone could, I guess, just – Pay your entry fee, right? You're in the Canadian Olympic trials. And yet there were only seven women in Canada, or actually only six women in Canada that broke 245 in that race. So I wonder how many women even entered the race. It's fascinating to me. Here are the qualifiers. Qualified men, U.S. Olympic trials, 199. Qualified women, 383. So those standards are obviously going to come down in 2024 because the Olympic standards have changed. But Robert, here's the other thing: the Canadian Olympic trials only the top finish, only the top Canadian finisher was guaranteed a spot on the team. I mean, we've seen this like London Marathon's done this for some of their races. I I read that they were going to honor the top three if they were going to if they're in line to go to the Olympics because they have the standard, or if they have the world ranking, they will get to go to the Olympics. So you want to just make sure you're top three, and then you get to go to the Olympics. Oh, I the, what what I read is only top one was guaranteed to not get bumped, you know, as long as they had the standard. So I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, Trevor Hoffbauer two two oh nine PB to finish as a top Canadian from two sixteen at age twenty seven. So that's that's pretty crazy. He said he posted a, a blog post about this called "Keep Showing Up." where he was sort of explaining, well, he'd made some progression, but not everything had come together for him. One of his target half marathons had been canceled due to wildfires and his marathon this spring, he ran 216, but he was thinking he could have run 213. So he didn't think it was as big, you know, personally, he was like, this isn't as big a jump 
as I thought it was, you know, as people thought it was. But still, you know, on paper, people look at it and it's like, that's ridiculous. Also, can we give a shout out? Phil Monrono, I know we gave him credit for winning the race. He has maybe my favorite nickname in all of running. His nickname is Baby Police because he has a baby face and he works for the Kenyan police. So I just think it's awesome. Whenever that guy does well, he, he it's just like the best nickname in the running world. And he trains with Kipchoge too. Well, we need to bring back the dreams become reality runner of the week. And Trevor Hoffbrauer is mine for sure. I mean, his story is very cool. 216 to 209. That just isn't done. Um, and his blog post, he tries to explain it. And a lot of it sort of makes sense to me. Also, the guy quit training with a watch. And when I made a huge breakthrough in running, I essentially moved to Flagstaff and I had to quit running off of pace, off of artificial time and run off how I felt. And Robert was getting into like uh, how you make the Canadian Olympic team. And I thought he was essentially going to say, well, the only the winner was guaranteed. So maybe half hour. Otherwise, I don't know how the second and third guy get picked for the Canadian team. But maybe he thought like, look, the only way I can make it from this race is I have to be the first guy. So I'm just going to go for it. And it's just a different type of mindset. Like essentially he's like, well, I got to run to nine. Otherwise, there's no shot of making the Olympics. And that he made that his goal. And like, obviously not that anyone else can do this. And I mean, he tries to explain how he's now a 209 guy. And you're, it's like, wow, this is crazy. And I started a thread like, who, what, how did this guy become what he is? And people were like, oh, you're, you're trying to imply doping. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just like, obviously, like anyone does that, you'd think about that. That's the greatest compliment you can get in the sport is that people think you're doping. That's the greatest compliment you can get. Oh, yeah. When I, people, when I went from 29, 49 to 28, 27 for 10K, I mean, that's not as big a jump as this, I don't think. People are like, wow, he must be doping. I'm like, holy shit, someone thinks I'm doping? This is great. He believed in himself. The watch, that sort of stuff. Yeah, if it, well, fine. If it came out five years down the road, he was doping. Like, well, then you would evaluate it differently. But like, there's no reason to think that. I mean, obviously, anyone who's it's just the nature of sport. You're going to think about that, and like, that's the greatest compliment you can get in the sport is somebody thinks you're doping. I think I kind of joke that you know you haven't made it as a runner until someone accuses you of doping on the Let's Run message board, and you know that's that's just the way it is. There are always going to be people who are suspicious based on performance, but. One other thing, have you guys seen this guy? He's six foot three. I, I don't know how much he weighs, but he's got to be one of the heaviest sub 210 marathoners ever. I mean, he, he used to play basketball growing up. I couldn't believe when I looked at this guy, like this guy's a marathoner. He's the Canadian champion. Exactly, John. I was just about to go there with that. I think obviously the shoes helped him. I mean, like that that's the thing, like a minute or two, but like severely reducing the pounding that's going to help a much bigger guy. I assume, uh, obviously I'm no scientist. I didn't stay at a holiday and express last night either. So, uh, but I think, you know, a two Oh nine now might've been what two ten or two eleven once was, which was, would still be a fabulous run for this guy. I mean, his half marathon PR is one Oh four thirty. But as he said, look, I, I was like a one Oh three guy, you know? And like when my, when my 10 K PR was officially twenty nine fifty, I was really like more like a 29 minute guy. I thought so. Great run by him. He's my dreams become reality athlete. I'll let you guys jump on that bad wagon as well if you want him. Since Bolton's mad that I didn't actually talk about the winners of the race, he's talked about Phil Monrono winning his third Toronto men's title. Magdalena Masai, Magdalena Masai Robertson, the wife of is it Zane or which one is it, John? Jake Robertson. Jake Robertson was the winner of the women's race in Toronto in 222-16. 
which was a Canadian all-comers record by one second. So she won $80,000, which will go a long way in Canada. And then in Amsterdam, for the record, Vincent Kipchumbo, 205.09, won the men's race. And 20-year-old Ethiopian, Dejitju Asmara, ran 219.26. Also, Tijit Jerma of Ethiopia, who's young as well, ran 219.52. I mean, Ethiopia is quite deep in the women's marathon these days. All right, guys. There is a... A topic I want to address. I think this is very interesting. I was talking about this with my roommate at Pub Trivia last night, and he's a triple jumper. And he was talking about Zion Williamson because Zion Williamson, you know, the star rookie for the New Orleans Pelicans, and he's essentially he's out for a few weeks now with with a knee injury, and it's a torn meniscus. He's out for six to eight weeks, and he was saying like. There's been speculation among jumpers for months, ever since they were watching him compete in college. They were saying essentially like, this guy is too big, he's too heavy and too explosive for him not to have knee issues like going forward. Because they know when you're pushing off on the runway, you know, you're creating, it's a very explosive movement. You're putting a lot of pressure on your joints and everything. And he was saying like people like Marquise Dendy, the former world indoor champion, the long jump and... You know, my, my roommate himself and then I think some of his other jumping community people, they were all saying like this isn't sustainable. This guy's body composition, you can't be that heavy and that explosive without putting too much torque. His he, you know, his knees are gonna be shot, and they were all doubting his NBA potential. And I just thought this was really interesting that people from other sports, they're sort of used to these movements and they can su- sort of see like, yeah, this isn't gonna work out. I'm not saying that Zion Williams is gonna be a flop, but I was intrigued by this whole line of thinking that because, you know, jumpers have this experience of all these explosive movements and they thought, you know, he wasn't going to be able to do it without, he wasn't going to make it through his career without getting injured because he's putting so much stress on his, uh, on his knees. Is Zion, I don't know, a lot of NBA guys jump and dunk, right? So like, is Zion just considered to be bigger, more explosive? I mean, I think he's kind of both those things, right? Like, what would you... So, he, yeah, the, the special circumstances around Zion is that he is particularly explosive. Like, his his jumping ability is, like, one of the things he's known for. He's famous. It's one of his biggest assets. And he's also, for his frame, he's only six foot seven, but he's 280 pounds, which is, you know, very – it's a lot of – I'm not saying he's fat or anything, but it's a lot of muscle and mass on that frame. So you combine those things. Like, LeBron James is – I think LeBron was probably around 280 at his peak as well – but he, he's a few inches taller than Williamson. And I think that's one of the incredible things is Le- LeBron is very explosive and has made it through. He's one inch taller, but I think he's lighter at this point. LeBron's made it through his career almost injury-free, which is remarkable. But when I just was fascinated, they were, they were all saying like, yeah, this guy, he's going to get hurt. You just can't put that much strain and torque on your muscles at you know, 6'7", 280. I think it's going to be very interesting. I love watching him play basketball, but I was fascinated by the theorizing behind this. Plus, I heard he was overweight coming into training camp. So I think that's an issue. John, I'm fascinated by your roommate. You live with a triple jumper. Like, how good was this guy? Does he go to, like, triple jump websites every day to see what's going on? Like, does he pay for NBC Gold? Like, how does he follow the sport, or does he? Like, does he think of himself as a triple jumper in the same way that we might think of ourselves as runners? Oh, to- totally. Yeah, yeah. He's big. Like, his goal is to make the Olympic trials um, this year. And does he have a name, or does he want to be anonymous, John? Uh, I don't know. I'll have to ask. I'll have to ask him. We'll keep him anonymous for now. We should sponsor him. He's not like an elite trip. He's not like he didn't make. 
I think he competed at USA Indoors this year, actually. So, uh, you know. You don't know if your roommate was at USA Indoors. I mean, that you yourself. No, he was. He was at USA Indoors. I know that. I'm saying I I don't think he was at USA Outdoors, but I don't want to out him at the moment. But what do you mean? John, you were at USA Outdoors. You wouldn't realize if he was there? Like He wasn't there. No. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't watching the triple jump closely. But But wouldn't you know if your roommate was at the same meet as you? Like, do you guys not talk to each other? Like, this seems weird to me. Well, we weren't on the same flight or anything. I... He wasn't there. He wasn't at USA Outdoors. I I know that. I just wow. Do we need to pay some counseling in the house or something? I mean, no, we're fine. We I said we played trivia last night. This is fascinating. I feel like kind of Mark Parker, like with the Penn State guys. Like I want to know about this other world. You know, like Mark Parker wanted to hang with the big boys at Penn State, and I'm like, wow, trouble jumper. I can find out the details. Like, you know, he wants to talk about basketball world and like the knees blowing out and putting topical male hormone in places. Like, oh, I'm I'm all for it. Well, you just love that topical male hormone phrase, don't you, Weldon? I don't know. I just thought it was really weird. And th- that was like at in Doha at 5.30 in the morning when I was catching my flight after being up for a week straight pretty much. And I just, this phrase stuck in my head. I'm like, this is really weird. I want to get to the bottom of this. Just ask what people think. And now I finally have an answer two weeks later, so I feel good about it. But guys, do you have a, how about what deleted thread of the week before we go? Hit, hit us with it. A lot of spam this week, but I, I think I found one that's interesting. This is just more interesting. Why won't New York get rid of the mafia? And maybe you're thinking I'm, I'm too New York centric now. I, you know, praise Shalane as the goat or as the goat with the masses because she won New York. And now I'm curious, why won't New York get rid of the mafia? I feel like the mafia has a much smaller influence than it has. So you're going to have corruption anywhere. Like, I don't know if it's a fair question, but yeah, what. You still hear in the news, like the mafia guy, they all live in Long Island, I feel like. I mean, on Staten Island. And like one of the mafia guys got murdered by some crazy, it wasn't even like a mafia hit. But they all know they're mafia. I'm like, well, if you all know they're mafia, can't nowadays like look at their bank accounts or something, shut that shit down more often. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. I'm still in New York. The mafia might come after me. They can figure out where I live and shit. I mean, it's the same case. I'm sure that... Have they not seen mafia movies? I mean, watch Godfather 2. Why couldn't they convict Michael Corleone? Like, there are... It's hard to convict someone of crimes without evidence. And the whole thing of the mafia is they don't let a lot of this evidence get out. So, or they don't have people talking. So, yeah, why does the mafia still exist? Because you can't just... You can't just put someone in prison because you're convinced that they're in the mafia. You need actual hard evidence. Could we blame Mark Zuckerberg? I was thinking about this the other day with like end-to-end encryption with like WhatsApp. Like, can drug dealers just stand on the street now and just text each other like right across the street? Like the deals, like nobody can access those phones. It's end-to-end encryption. Oh, Robert, you need to watch The Wire as a Baltimore resident. Watch the whole, the whole premise of The Wire is based on this whole concept. Yeah, I know. So I'm saying back the then, they, back then they could tap the phone lines. They can't tap a WhatsApp. It's encrypted. That's what I'm saying. I was actually thinking of it in terms of how things have changed since the wire. Actually, I, I, I was on a run with someone, and they were telling me that one of the reasons murder rates, everyone says murder rates are way down because of better policing and the broken windows theory and all that stuff. And they were saying that cell phones are a major reason. It used to be you had to have like a drug den to, to sell drugs, and now then it was cell phones that made it just easier to sort of in pager, same thing. So maybe the pager just goes back a while. But like essentially like the runner could bring the drugs to you. So they didn't have to be in one concentrated place. Turf battles became less important. So maybe we're on to something. Okay. Do we need a new topic? 
I think we might be done, but Robert, I swear at the end of last week's podcast said that the Lisbon something was this week, and that's what we'll be talking about all month. Robert, have we discussed that? Uh, no, we have not. Lisbon was actually last week. Um, there were, I, 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 you know, I, I just knew that there were some big races. Uh, Lins, Lisbon, for the record, Titus Ikuri of Kenya won the half marathon in 60-12. Titus, come on. That's how that name is pronounced, Robert. John's very upset with my, my pronunciation. Course record. Who would, why, would we th- why would you think it's pronounced Titus? It's Titus. That Titus is a name. Perez Chiptichir has won the women's race in a 66-54 course record. That's for the half. There's actually course records in the half in the marathons as well. Andulam Bele of Ethiopia is running two hundred six flat, and Chale Dalasa Adugda of Ethiopia is running two twenty nine fifty one. So I apologize for not getting those at the top of the show. Yeah, what what's happening next, Robert? You got to give me what are the low key road races that we need to talk about next week. Uh, well, this weekend, according to Race Results Weekly, we have the Heroes Run Half Marathon. I'm not sure where that is. The Military World Games and the Minova Frankfurt Marathon. So Frankfurt is actually a decent marathon, but not as much to recap this weekend. It'll be a light week in NCAA cross country. Well, actually, one thing I wanted to talk about real quick, the Diamond League. They came out. There's all this talk about the downgrading the Diamond League. The Diamond League has actually added a meet. So they've subbed in Gateshead for Birmingham while the Birmingham stadium is redone for the 2022 commonwealth games china is getting a second diamond league they're starting the season in doha on april 17th i mean the schedule is kind of ridiculous they start the season in doha on april 17th and then there's no meet for over three weeks until the second meet which is the china meet where we don't know it's going to be may 10th and then you have shanghai may 16th you've got a pretty interesting stretch in the middle of the season you have eugene which is the pre-classic the first, you know, there's the Pac-12s and then there's the first major meet at the New Haywood Field, June 7th in Eugene. And then the next week in Austin is the NCAAs. And then the week after that, you have the Olympic trials back in Eugene. So that month of June 2020 is going to be a phenomenal week, month for uh, American track fans. And then you have the one final in Zurich at the end of the season on September 11th. And then Stockholm still has a meet. I'm confused. Stockholm said they were losing their Diamond League, but they still have one on May 24th. So some interesting things coming out with the new IAF Diamond League schedule. Yeah, it's interesting that, well, I think they have a big Chinese sponsor, right? Wanda or something? Yes. So it makes sense they're going to China. Everyone's going to China because of the money. Um, the sport needs more money. That's a good thing. We went to Doha for the money, but I don't think we actually got more money, which isn't a, a good thing. But our, now, I mean, we've been discussing China on the podcasts. We talked about going to more Diamond League events. Are we going to be banned? Banned from going to China. I, I I wanted to I, I thought the Thai and China talk I wasn't really prepared to talk about it last week. I've been actually reading up a lot on it. I, I re- highly recommend the Exponent podcast uh, with Ben Thompson or his Stratechery blog about it. But it's pretty interesting in the fact of what they were trying to do with the with the NBA. Is again, Twitter is banned in China. A guy makes a comment on Twitter, and the Chinese want him fired for what he's saying in America about their country. Like their their idea that our free speech doesn't even exist in our own country is pretty a bold statement. And these people, one of whom lives in Taiwan, he, he used to sort of have a different take, but he's, he's, they're, they're wondering if we should even bother be doing business with a, a country like this, because it's kind of interesting. Bill Clinton, you know, in, in the late nineties, they thought when we went into, they laughed, like the, the idea was we would go to do business with China. They're going to see the Western ways. It's going to open up. They're going to get the internet. There's no way they can clamp down on freedom. Like it'll naturally, the world gets free and freer and freer. But people don't realize 
technology, we're talking about the mafia and stuff. Technology has actually made it much easier to clamp down on it. Think about East Germany. For them, the Stasi police to know what people were saying and who was for and against the government, they had to employ thousands of spies, tens of thousands of people. With China now, thanks to Cisco building out the firewall, they know what everybody's thinking. They, they can ban everything instantly on your phone and your computer. And it's pretty crazy. Like It's easier for them to clamp down now than it would have been, say, the pre-internet era. Uh, they have, yeah, that the technology that uh, Bruce Wayne uses at the end of the Dark Knight to locate the Joker. Yeah, making the mainstream. All right, I think this podcast has gone off the rails. Maybe Robert needs his own China weekly spinoff podcast. Uh, he seems more informed on this issue than last week. But otherwise, I think we're pretty much good for this week. You know, well then, let's uh, take us home here. Yes, we're 10, 11 days away from the New York City Marathon. So we'll have plenty to talk about next week, guys. Yes, the New York City Marathon. Whoever wins is the greatest runner of all time. So a lot on the line there. I mean, you're seeing you're seeing the subway signs, signs on the buses. New York's getting ready. All of New York weeps at the retirement of Shailen Flanagan today. That means we're only nine days away from the Ivy League heptagonal championships. We're Princeton. We're going for another title. Dartmouth hasn't won in probably 10 years, and Yale has never won. John, I just looked it up. Yale did beat Dartmouth at the pre-nationals. Does that mean we're a contender? We were like 22nd place. We lost to Yale? Yes, that means we're good. Oh, my God. Are we good? That, this is... No, that's a bad sign for Dartmouth. We shouldn't be losing to Yale in anything, except maybe hockey and lacrosse. Yale beat oh Harvard earlier in the year. Don't forget that. I figured 22nd means we're probably not a contender. But the Yale guys do like Trevor Hoffbauer. Remember, early in the season, I said, just trust yourself. Do what you can do. Trevor Hoffbauer, just emulate that guy. Quit wearing your watches. Just pull a Hoffbauer. I still believe in Dartmouth. We'll get revenge at the Heps.